Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 18 and we'll be in verses 9 through 14. It is no secret that I adore the word of God. I love it. I study it all the time, extracting every particle of meaning that I can. Sometimes I fancy myself a a scribe. And I'll take out a plain sheet of paper and a pen, especially the text that I would be in, and I would copy the original onto that paper. I love how it begins. When Moses wrote it, inspired of God, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashemayim va'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the follow-up to that in John 1, 1. In en halagos. In the beginning was the Word. I love the Word of God. But all of my love and study and adoration for the Word of God are useless and meaningless if I cannot and do not have applied to my life the parable that Jesus teaches in this passage of Scripture. The Pharisees and the scribes loved the Word of God. On a particular occasion several years ago, this is only the second time I've ever mentioned it. I mentioned it once to Pat but it's been so long ago that I feel a little more comfortable talking about it. During a very difficult time in a particular pastorate, my kids were still at home, still fairly young. I went to bed that night and I had the most vivid dream. My family and I were walking in paradise. Paradisos, that's the vast, endless area that surrounds the New Jerusalem. There were tributaries of the river of life in my dream running all through paradise. Pat, the kids, they were with me. We were walking. The pathway was a golden pathway. It was almost white, but glowed in gold. We crossed a little bridge, and the bridge was constructed of a single beautifully cut diamond. 
flowing along under the bridge, the liquid diamond tributary of the river of life itself, it flowed swiftly over the rocks and instead of river rocks or stones, they were diamonds. And the sound that it made was not a sound of splashing, it was music. Beautiful music coming from the moving water. We came to the first tree. It was massive. The bark on the tree in slithers as bark is, one slither upon the other. The bark was finely cut garnet stones, rich, deep red. The leaves were paper thin emeralds, splashed with little tiny sparkles of diamonds. The rivers of the tributaries flowed into a liquid diamond sea. The next tree we passed, massive and huge, its bark was deep blue, sapphire, finely, finely cut. The paper-thin leaves were of rubies, and they were splashed with sparkling diamonds and a breeze that flowed through paradise, which was the presence of the Holy Spirit, the breath of the Almighty, a ruach. Going through those leaves, it sounded like an orchestra. It blended perfectly with the music that the river made. We approached the massive gate of pearl. I could only see just inside, way, 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 way up, above the cloud, above the skyline of the city where there were no clouds. The sky itself was beautiful pastel colors, one that blended into the other. And I couldn't see him, but I knew that the master, the Lord, the king, the ancient of days was enthroned at the very top. And as a Niagara gushing forth from beneath his throne was the river of life itself. And it splashed downward as it cascaded on either side and down the middle of the broadest of the golden streets, which branched off into smaller streets. And it was a magnificent musical sound. Someone may ask, do you think that's what heaven is like? No, I think it's better than that. Because the eye hasn't seen, the ear hasn't heard, nor has it even entered into the imagination of a man what God has in store for those who love him. But for whatever reason, perhaps he, because of the troubles of the church of the day, unlocked my imagination. And I love the thoughts of heaven, all that it means to me. But even that is meaningless and useless 
if the truth of this parable is not applied to my life. Christ himself, he's on the way to the cross. He's not that far from it now. Teaches to those who are around him life's most important issue. It really doesn't matter whether or not you have any depth of theology in your life when it comes to this parable. It doesn't matter what you think of heaven. They come to be meaningful in your life, but at the start of it all and at the beginning of it all is the most important issue of life that everyone must be faced with. And Christ himself, God the Son, teaches it here in this parable. So let's look at it. Now he also spoke this parable to some trusting in themselves that they are righteous. Those were the Pharisees that were nearby. He's been teaching his disciples about the kingdom, the initial spiritual nature of it. That they are righteous and utterly despising others. Two men went into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Twice a day the Jews in Jerusalem were called to pray. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., morning and evening sacrifices to be followed by prayer. So the people would begin to gather and move in at the time. And the sacrifice was made. And then based upon that sacrifice, the people would do what they did in that day to come into the presence of God. The incense then would begin to be burned by the priests, which was symbolic of the prayers of God's people being lifted into heaven. And there they would pray. So this is the scene. It's one of those sacrifices of the morning or the evening sacrifice and the time of the morning or evening prayer. And there would have been all kinds of Jews in that place all around. The Pharisee, thus having stood, was praying toward himself. Oh, God. I thank you that I'm not like the rest of the men, swindlers, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now you understand the tax collector included all those things. He was just awful. In that day, the Jews had classified people either as Chabarim, which was the law keeper, or Amharetz, the, the law breaker. The Pharisees saw themselves as the law keeper and they despised the law breakers and they decided who broke the law. Thus they stood away from them and didn't want to touch them, so to be unclean. Naturally then, 
in this time of prayer, the Pharisee would carefully situate himself as close to the holy place as he could go and as far away from sinners as he could be. Now, this is the scene. I fast, now this is in his prayer. I fast twice in the week. We read that those fasts were on Mondays and Thursdays because that's when the most people were in town. Most people would be there and the largest group of people then could see how holy the Pharisees were. Why not Wednesday and Saturday? Weren't many many people there. Of course, Saturday is Sabbath, you know. Had to do it on Monday and Thursday. I now, there's only one required fast in the Old Testament. That's the Day of Atonement, the fast of the Day of Atonement, Leviticus, what, chapter 1 or somewhere along? Everything else was just made up for whatever reason, a ritual, a show, a ceremony, to make the man feel good, whether or not it did anything to move God's heart. I fast twice in the week. I tithe all things as much as I gain. Now, if you study the tithing practice of the day, it meant that this guy tithed because you had to tithe for this, then you had to tithe for that, then you had to tithe for this. So it all counted up to more than 10%, it's about 23, 24%. So he says, I tithe all things as much as I gain. I'm not going to tithe on the capital. <laughs> I'm going to tithe on the profit. Okay. As much as I gain. But the tax collector standing afar off was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven, but was striking his breast. Now why? You can read about that too. Because the sinner, when he came before God, broken in his sin, would pound his breast, knowing that all that sin came from within himself, from, from, from his heart. A true repentant sinner doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame other people. He says, this came from me. Oh God, be propitious, be propitiated to me, the sinner. It's an inch. There's only twice. There's only, only, only twice in the Bible that that verb is used. It's used one more time in Hebrews. It means, oh God, be appeased toward me. Now, this is the time of the sacrifice. You understand? Somewhere in there, a sacrifice had been made. Now, it wasn't the Day of Atonement, and it wasn't the time for the, for the mercy seat and all of that, but the worshiper would have had in his mind that God was back there where that ark was in the mercy seat. And so the best thing for him would be this Sacrifice the blood of this animal, this innocent, flawless animal, slain for sin. So with that in mind, he says, be, be appeased. Oh God, know this. I'm the reason. That thing is going to die. Apply that blood 
to me, the sinner. You see, it's articular. He uses the article, the. He's not thinking of anybody else but himself. That's all. I say to you, this one went down to his house justified. Now listen, if you're not justified, you're not saved. Heaven is not yours. The Bible is not yours. Eternity in heaven with God, those are not yours. If you're not justified. This one went down to his house justified rather than that one. For everyone exalting himself will be humbled, but the one humbling himself will be exalted. This flipped the religion of the Pharisee upside down. This is unthinkable to the Pharisee. You're saying to me, That the law keeper is not justified, but the lawbreaker is. Is that what you're saying? You're saying that the sinner leaves justified and the righteous man does not. That was the mind of the Pharisee. So then several points, we're going to fly through them. Number one, this is in the context of Jesus' teaching on his second coming and the kingdom. Now remember, just before this, Jesus is telling them that the kingdom presently is a spiritual kingdom. If you're not in the spiritual kingdom, you won't, you won't be in the earthly kingdom, nor will you be in the eternal kingdom. Won't belong to you. This is a teaching about the second coming of Christ and the nature of the kingdom. Right now, those of us who are in Christ are in the spiritual kingdom, which means we'll be in the earthly kingdom, which then will mean that we'll be in the eternal kingdom. No one who is not in the spiritual kingdom will ever be in any other part of the kingdom. Never. Disqualified. So Jesus here is teaching about the spiritual nature of the kingdom initially. Remember, they're thinking that the Messiah has to come on a horse and he has to gather up an army and he has to defeat the, the Romans and has to then establish himself right then. The Pharisees and all of those self-righteous folks didn't want to think anything about the suffering Messiah. They wanted to bypass all of that. All of the writings in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in other various parts of the scriptures that talk about how a great atonement has to be made for us, namely that the Christ has to suffer and die first. Well, they just want to bypass that. That doesn't apply to their religion. They don't need a savior. They've saved themselves. But this is in the context of his teaching about the spiritual nature of the kingdom and then his second coming. Secondly, the parable begs the question, how does one get into this kingdom? Or like Job asked in chapter nine, how can a man be right with God? 
You got to answer that question correctly or you're lost. You're unsaved. Heaven is not yours. Hell is your eternal abode. If you don't get the right answer to this question in your life, how does one get into this kingdom? You have to be right with God. Now, God requires perfection. Well, okay. Number three, the Old Testament system was built on this truth. No man can justify himself. While they were there at a time of sacrifice, what's the animal being killed for? What's the blood being spilled for? It was being spilled for sin. It was being spilled by the instruction of God that nobody is a law keeper. Something has to die. Something that is flawless and perfect has to take your place. That's the whole Old, that's the whole old Testament system. Sacrifices, sacrifices, blood, bulls and rams and lambs and turtle doves. Endless, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals always being slain, spilling the blood to remind the worshiper that he is unworthy, that God demands perfection and that no man can justify himself, that no man can make himself righteous that God has to provide atonement, a substitute, something that is perfect. This is the whole thing that everybody there should have known. No one can justify himself. The rich young ruler came to Christ. You know the story. What do I have to do? Get into this kingdom. Inherit eternal life. Sell everything that you have. Follow me. He said, I'm a law keeper. I've been, I've been unblemished since my birth. I'm a perfect guy. I'm not a sinner. Okay. Sell everything that you have and follow me. He couldn't. He left sad. Christ explained this because the disciples asked the question, who then can be saved? Christ's beautiful reply was this. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one who gives salvation. No man can justify himself. That's as simple. Either you make yourself right before God or you can't. Can you make yourself right before God? And then demand heaven. Demand the presence of God. Can you do that? Do you have it? within yourself to be perfect and sinless and unblemished and unspotted and thereby be deserving of heaven. Either you can or you can't. Now the Bible says if you've ever been guilty of one part of the law, 
You're guilty of all of it. And death is the verdict. That's what the Bible says. God gave 10 commandments in a very brief portion of scripture. And then for chapter after chapter, God begins to provide how man would build a tabernacle and how there would be an altar and how there'd be all this kind of stuff and all the material that go into the tabernacle. And then the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the rituals chapter after chapter, because God knew that man could not keep those 10 commandments. We're fallen. We cannot justify ourselves. And so the lessons in atonement begin. In the beautiful story of the tabernacle and sacrifices and ceremonies, all of which lead us to Christ. Either you can justify yourself or you can't. Either you can make yourself righteous or you can't. It's very simple. It's one of those two things. So then there are only two so-called religions that exist. The religion of self, the religion of human achievement, and the religion of divine sovereign execution by grace. I don't care how many titles are given to religions in the world, so-called. All of those religions, apart from the instruction of the Holy Scriptures, are built on human merit, are built on human achievement and behavior. They're all built on self-made righteousness, a, a complex system of rules, regulations, required behavior, and then you can make it. That's all. It doesn't matter what you call it. it. Doesn't matter what name you give to it. It boils down to this. A religion of human achievement. A religion of human works. The only other thing that's left is the one that's given in the Bible of divine, sovereign grace. God has to give to you what you must have to have your place in this kingdom. It, it must be this righteousness that is required, this perfection must be imputed to you. You cannot purchase it. You cannot get it. You cannot gain it. God has to give it to you. You cannot clothe yourself in a perfect robe. God must clothe upon you with this perfection. You cannot do this yourself. Only two religions. One or the other. This is the great teaching of the parable. What Christ is saying to the people who are here. So then Christ in the parable offers the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. To everybody there, man, the Pharisee was perfection personified. And the tax collector was sin personified. So here's the contrast. Self-righteousness or brokenness in sin. Which way is it? Now the Pharisee, he's aloof. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He asks for no mercy. He is not moved in any way 
to request salvation from God. He's very visible. He stands in the crowd and situates himself away from the sinners, doesn't want them to touch him, and places himself as close to the holy place as he can in the presence of God. He is self-righteousness embodied, a safe distance from the lawbreakers is this self-acclaimed and self-exalted lawkeeper. Thank you, God. Thank you that I'm not nasty like these other people. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I have made myself perfect. I don't know why you made that sacrifice, but it's okay. I understand you have to put on a show, but I'm in need of nothing. That's Pharisee. There's a tax collector. Goes into the appropriate place, but does not feel worthy to stand anywhere close to the presence of God. He's broken. He's guilty. He knows it. He's ashamed, humbled, undeserving, repentant, with a sense of guilt and alienation from God. He feels the weight of his sin and the great remorse in his life, and he acknowledges that he is deserving of punishment. Totally unworthy. of God's favor or grace. Personally aware of his sin, he doesn't see the sin of anybody else, he just sees his own. He can't worry about the sins of everybody else. He only can be consumed with thoughts of his own sin. A sinner, a sinner, helpless before God except for the mercy seat, just beyond the veil, there's a mercy seat. That means that God is a God of mercy. The blood had just been spilled. The tax collector takes his place way back there. On his face, unworthy even to lift his eyes and look up. He only has this one cry from his heart. Oh God, be appeased by the blood of this innocent sacrifice for my sin. That thing is dying because of me. No other reason that beautiful animal has to die except that I'm in need of appeasement. Oh God, be mercy seated for me. 
the sinner. Nothing else matters for him except that he is in the presence of God, aware of his great sin and in need of God's salvation. He's helpless, it's hopeless, except that God would be mercy seated for him. That's all there was for him, was just that God would sovereignly extend grace to him though he didn't deserve it. The difference between these two guys is this, what they believed about themselves in the presence of God. That's the only difference between the two. You can see then why I began the message by telling you that you can love the Bible. You can love songs about heaven. You can love thoughts about heaven. You can love all kinds of things that are seemingly high and holy, but they are meaningless and useless to you if the truth and the principle of this parable have never been applied to your life. That's the only way that God will receive us. For us to come empty-handed, like the whole song said, just as I am. I have no plea. I have no worth. I have no dignity. I'm nothing but a worthless sinner. But I'm told there's a mercy seat back there behind that curtain. And that tells me that you are a God of mercy. God, be mercy seated for me, the sinner. When you consider that sinless blood that is spilled, please know and accept, O oh God, that that blood is for me, the sinner. That atonement is for me, the guilty one. Oh God, save me. Be appeased for me, the sinner. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. <clears throat> if you will admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and in confessing that you're a sinner, call on him to save you. God will save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In just a moment, we'll stand up. If you're here without Christ, I'm praying that you won't leave that way. That you'll come. Let me pray with you. Just tell me, Pastor, I want to be saved. I'm a sinner. I want to be saved. Maybe you're here, you're already a Christian. And God leads you to come and be a part of this congregation in the way that we receive members. You come. We'll take care of all the details if that's what God wants in your life as a believer. Father God in heaven, bless this invitation.
and glorify yourself in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, okay?